Welcome to the Extra Credits Podcast, where we search for meaning in your favorite movies and shows. I'm Trey. Today, I'm talking to writer David Kajanik about his career and his most recent work, Bones and All. Thanks for joining me today, David. Thanks, Trey, for having me. Yeah, of course. So before we get to your work in most recent films, I know you were an English professor and worked at the Iowa Writers Workshop. I'm so curious about your experience in education because even though my co-host Kelsey, who couldn't hear, be here by the way, so she wanted to say hi, uh, she couldn't be here, but we're both, um, we both have this conversation show about movies and shows and speak to creators, but we're actually public educators in high school. And Kelsey's actually in the process of getting her PhD, uh, trying to get her PhD right now. Um, and we're so interested in your career for just that reason alone, besides loving your films and your work too. But I'm curious, what about you was interested in education and then transitioned to screenwriting? How did that happen? Ah, well, um, I, you know, I'm someone who thinks teaching is one of the noblest, <laughs> most important ways one can spend one's time if one has something to offer. Uh, so, I mean, I, I was sort of hoping we would spend most of the show geeking out about teaching. Actually. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, I spent you know, like a dec- more than a decade, you know, before I ever had any inclination to to move out west to try to start kind of this kind of screenwriting career. You know, I was teaching everywhere, like public schools, private schools, you know, universities, high schools uh, in the backcountry with outward bound summer camps. Like my whole life was teaching and I would just, you know, steal hours here and there. To, to read and to, to start writing my own stuff. But, uh, you know, moving to Los Angeles and working in film was never was never really the plan. Mm. Uh, so it really caught uh, caught me off guard. And I'll tell you now when everything comes out, I still, even after all these years, um, I wonder if a film that comes out um, enhances or injures my credibility as a teacher <laughs> when I think of all <laughs> my former students going to the movies and thinking, oh yeah, that guy didn't know what he was talking about at all. Or he really did. <laughs> Puts you in a vulnerable place. I can say though, from yeah. teaching high schoolers and uh, from 16 to 18 years old, uh, a lot of the young ones are seeing this movie and they're enjoying it, which is surprising because oh, of this, the what is actually going on in the movie on the on the surface, but subtextually, like a lot of them are picking up on it and wanting to talk about it in class. So I find that fascinating. So you succeeded. Well, that's I'm really happy to hear that because you know I think we have to be honest about you know what what young people are able to access and what they're able to watch and what languages they speak, frankly, symbolically and metaphorically and otherwise. You mm-hmm. know, and the idea that uh, you know I'm none of us was particularly interested in critics decoding the film as much as young people decoding the film <laughs> um you know and this this novel which was you know ostensibly a young adult novel whatever that ends up meaning to whoever's using that phrase mm-hmm. uh it just seemed like it was such a deft metaphor for so many so many ways in which one could be pushed to the side or marginalized so when i was writing the film and when we were making the film we didn't want to be very prescriptive about that because we wanted to leave all the interpretive doors op- as open as possible. You know, as long as people aren't misunderstanding that we're that we are equating being a monster with being in a marginalized community. Right. As long as that isn't on the table, you know, when people try to unpack this film, then really so many interpretations are, are available and we wanted to keep them available. No, you can feel uh, how genuine the intentions were when making this movie, uh, which you know, that makes me think about how 
you know, cause I try to put myself in your shoes, which is impossible, but you know, me and Kelsey were talking about this, like going from teaching to writing like that, because you're putting yourself out there so much and so much of teaching is a vulnerable position, but it sort of makes sense because you have to be, uh, so observant to, to be a, to be a writer like yourself. And you have to be an incredibly skilled listener to talk about other identities besides just your own too. We can imagine how that must be very difficult and you have to have a lot of attention to detail and you can tell in your writing and how it's visualized on screen uh, how incredible that is. So it's it's really well done. And um, what's funny about education, the teacher conversation, because Ruben Usland, who just directed Triangle of Sadness, was just on here like five minutes ago. And he was talking about how his mother was an educator and how that inspired him to do his work. So that's that's so funny. Well, I think it, it, I mean, it's, it doesn't surprise me because, yeah. you know, I think about the best definition I've ever heard of, of what a good liberal education is, is that it's something that empowers you to talk with anyone, regardless of where they're from, what they're doing, what their background is, what their aspirations are. And that, to me, that's about empathy, or at least about high level sympathy. And so mm-hmm. I think of that as one half of what good teaching provides is, is, is a platform for that kind of empathy. But the other half of what good teaching provides is a, is a method to get there. And so when I think about transitioning from teaching to writing and making movies that, you know, I mean, honestly, millions of people go and see, and that's an alarming thing to think about, <laughs> you know, sort of out of context. But, you know, the idea that, that you know, maybe movies, even genre movies, give people some kind of method for empathy. It's kind of not surprising when I look back that some of the things that I cared so much about in the classroom are still the things I care about. It's just, I'm in a different classroom, <laughs> you know, a much bigger one. I suppose. So you've worked with uh, Luca on a bigger splash, Suspiria, and now Bones and All. And, you know, I don't say this for everybody we have on, but I would recommend those three films to anyone. They're incredible. Those are, those are oh, great works. Thanks. I'm curious what brings you and Luca back to each other so often now. Do you just share similar sensibilities? Because so many of the scripts you've written are about identity and negotiating one's desire to, I guess, survive in a world that it isn't always accepting. They're like really delicate themes. And these are concepts that I see as almost like a through line of your movies. And I've heard Luca speak about the films. He's like obviously very articulate. And I think as a screenwriter, I guess your job is to keep your own thoughts on page, but also try to include all the directors and trying to find order in the chaos a little bit, because those minds can be kind of different in that kind of intellectual chaos, if you will. So I can imagine trying to put both uh, of your ideas on paper must be difficult, but what is it about you and uh, Luca that works so well together now on three films? Well, I've been... I've thought a lot about this because the questions come up more on this mm-hmm. film than the other two, just by nature of it being, I guess, our, uh, yet another collaboration. But I think, you know, I, I think I see Luca in a way that, and and always have in a way that I think a lot of people are just starting to, which is that apart from how stylized he can be, apart from how, you know, sort of sensuous and operatic his movies can sometimes be. I mean, people are starting to recognize there's a really rigorous, serious humanist at the center of all of that beauty. Uh, and I think that's what attracted us to one another creatively when we first met was we're, we're both very well read. We're articulate people. We can we can hang out with the intellectuals if we <laughs> want to, but we can also hang out with anybody if we want to. And I think that was the surprise in meeting one another is feeling like, oh, we don't have to necessarily um, I don't know, uh, p- perform for one another. We can actually be pretty vulnerable and sincere and, and, and have become good friends in that respect. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, he's 
a visual storyteller and I'm a textual storyteller and each needs the other for a film to work. And I think we just have so much trust between us that I will catch his nuances. He will catch my nuances. You know what I mean? And, and, and we won't kind of pave over one another. Like sometimes writers try to right. pave over directors, directors succeed in paving over writers. It doesn't, we don't have that instinct with one another because we really do see these as collaborations. Yeah, no, you can truly feel that and you can feel how accessible you both are, which I like what you said about how you can speak to multiple, multiple different audiences, because that is how Bones and All feels. And specifically in your three films working with Luca, it feels like the themes of materialism, loneliness, and I guess this is, for lack of a better word, addiction. That's something that maybe I'm projecting onto the screen. But in a bigger splash and now Bones and All, you both sort of explore the desire to be in the material world but also the paradox of feeling lonely within that and how exploitative it is. And that's how I saw both films themes connect, or at least for a bigger splash and uh, bones and all, which like through Marianne's character, for example, in a uh, bigger splash, she's kind of haunted by addiction or materialism or feeling wanted uh represented by Harry and all those feelings from a bigger splash were um, imbued in that one shot. I keep coming back to in my mind. It's a visual image that stayed with me of, uh, in bones and all when, when, um, Marin is biting off the like freshly polished top of the finger of her like stable middle-class yeah. friends at a sleepover. And Marin yeah. wants so desperately to be part of this stability and find connection. So she kind of was lost in that moment of isolation and completely kind of overcome by her circumstances are these themes that you both come back to? Are you sitting together and talking and trying to figure out, okay, here are some things that we like and here are things that we think we can see on this, in this story? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the moment you mentioned Bones and All and, you know, in the script I had written that they were under that coffee table and the coffee table just was just sort of littered with tester bottles from Avon, you know what I mean? And just the idea <laughs> of seeing them through the lens of, all of these applications that teenage girls were sort of not only sort of forced to consider, but also forced to sell in a lot of ways. You know right. what I mean? It was, you know, it was, it was useful. And then Luca saw that image in the script and decided it was the right image for the film and, and, and built it out from there. But yeah, we have conversations like that all the time. They're, they're, they're rarely about how the thing will present itself to the audience. And they're just more about what would naturally come up inside of the world of these characters. And so when, when I hear you say everything you just said, which I'm very appreciative of, I think about how often invisibility comes up in our, in our films together. The idea of certain characters wanting invisibility and certain characters being forced into invisibility. And, and this idea of invisibility as a political state that some people choose and, and want, other people don't want, but are forced into. And it just seems to me like when you're talking about characters' um, addictions, I think the one that keeps coming up for me in, in my work with Luca is the addiction to the self, you know, the kind of the way we begin to mythologize ourselves often based on prompts from a, from a larger sort of outside culture, um, sometimes an economic culture in particular, mm -hmm. um, how they build up a sense of how we're, how, we're, how, we're, how we're meant to present in the world. And that can be in conflict with our natures. Um, but yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about this. You, you know, I, 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 I would tend to think anybody being a fly on the wall for a good long four hour <laughs> Luca Dave conversation would probably be excited at first and then by the end really be just... <laughs> longing to fly out of the room because we we go to some pretty serious lengths to <laughs> to try to understand these things no i think we we'd love that we need the six hour round table uh so sticking with bones and all here it is a 
multi-genre fable-like story and it is the way one of my students described it is a whole vibe is what they said so that's how that's how i'll say it uh this is a special masterfully raw movie that is instinctual in ways that really surprised me and pulling on emotional threads of the audience in ways that i think surprised everyone to fully buy in because the movie can be vulgar and it's like aesthetic sometimes, but it can also be very uh, intellectually curious and philosophical. And I think most people are attracted to the story for the visual elements, but it's also these characters because they're so fragile and they're almost, uh, almost provocative in how fragile they are because you're sympathetic to cannibals in the story and they're taking lives. And you really expand, I think, the audience's ability, or at least the way I felt, my own empathy and in a really provocative way that I was not expecting going into it. And cannibalism in that way sort of represents a few different things, whether it be income inequality in the story and how those most disadvantaged are forced to eat one another. That's definitely something that people have been picking up on. Or the way anyone who doesn't fit into mainstream society or othered, like through a queer lens, there have been a lot of great essays that have come out that have been pretty special already about this movie through that perspective. And maybe the most complex part of the the cannibalism metaphor, if you will, which was how it's passed down by family members, probably the part of it that I picked up on, because I think everyone's going to project their own lives onto the story, but just the way family members might pass down trauma or going back to addiction. How difficult was that to keep the original meaning behind cannibalism and the, the novel versus what the film is interested in investigating? Because I do find that after reading some of the book, there's so much, there's so much, I don't want to say more here because I'm not going to put down the book because the story is special, but there is uh, a lot, there is a lot more different things going on, which makes the story a little bit more complex for me. Yeah. I, I hope I can talk about this in a way that doesn't sound pretentious, but it's, there are a lot of ideas kind of packed into this. So I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll try to <laughs> not be boring. That's what podcasts are for. I guess so. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I mean, I think when I read the book, I was re really attuned to, to it had a kind of fairy tale diction to it. And and that, you know, it was really meaningful for the book because it was it meant that the book was able to talk about cannibalism um, in, in, a, in a actually in a very magical way. Do you know what I mean? It was mm -hmm. it was not a graphic thing in the book. Um, it was quite tidy in the book. And I, I just knew, practically speaking, it, that was going to be impossible probably to to mimic in a film without it, it rendering the cannibalism too meaningful in a way. It would it would somehow become um, the subject of the film right. rather than a kind of uh, lens. And so when I started to think about, well, what what tone could replace that? I thought, well, my only real choice here is is kind of stark naturalism and to have the the, the cannibalism almost be relegated to a, to the second row as a kind of condition that these characters have mm -hmm. um, and really put the all of the energy of the script into uh, just their behaviors around it, how they responded to it, how it how it um, detracted them from uh, knowing themselves and one another people, how it how it en enriched them in some ways when they fought, when they met other cannibals, how it was possible to to be seen in a way that could be of real metaphoric value for an audience, perhaps. So yeah, it was tough to sort of thread uh, the needle here in terms of cannibalism. But I think what really ultimately s sort of helped me <laughs> it made it harder because if this if 
if we didn't all do our jobs well on this film, it really would have come across as ridiculous. And I'm sure to some people in the audience, it, it is ridiculous. And and that's okay. I, I think mm -hmm. laughing at laughter is a part of the experience of this film or should be because we are th sort of cutting so close to the line here. But I think when you think about who gets marginalized in our society, it's almost always people who are perceived as using up too many resources, social mm -hmm. resources, economic resources, because they can't quite do it on their own. And, you know, the people who are making those judgments are the people who feel they are paying their taxes into a system that is meant to help people, but not hold them up all the time. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. that's the environment of the 80s I grew up in. And I thought, well, if I really thought about these cannibals naturalistically, they, they have one of two choices. They can either walk into an emergency room and say, I have an affliction and I need help and then spend the rest of their lives feeling uh, the recipients of other people's goodwill and judgment, or they could make themselves disappear uh, and try to do this in private without, you know, this is an odd word to use, but without inconveniencing too many people. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, my experience of the eighties, growing up gay in, in the eighties, having lots of friends who were uh, using, let's say using uh, sort of social and economic resources instead of putting them into the system, I think we all had this sense in common that we were more convenient for other people if we were less seen. Uh, and so, you know, that was my particular lens through this, but, you know, bringing it back to this subject of sort of how teaching might have been a useful uh, vocation for me heading into writing for the screen. I'm all, I was always for sort of like an engaged pedagogy in my classrooms. And that means being vulnerable with your students, but I was always one of those people who rallied against something like reader response theory, where the emotional reaction a student has to a text is most the most important element of their reading experience. So right. between those two positions, you know, kind of ha is this idea that yes, you need to be a person in front of your classroom, but you can't have your, uh, your own personal life supersede the rigor of what you're teaching. And I think that's also a lesson I've learned as a screenwriter, even though my experience of reading Camille's book and thinking about cannibals metaphorically and all of that in this film was very personal because I approached it as a, as a kid who grew up gay in, in the 80s and really wrestled with this in this one specific way. I, if I had somehow let that creep around the metaphor and become the subject of the film, I would have been doing a great big disservice, not only to the book, but to the audience who might have had other things that other other trauma, other pain, other conflict that they wanted, they were, would have been able to bring to this circuitry, um, if that makes sense. So I think teaching, the way yeah. I was a teacher really informs the way I'm a writer and that I want to engage in a conversation, but I don't want to put myself in front of the subject. What was it like? A rush. I need to feel every blood vessel like spider webbing through me. I like some kind of weird new superhero. What about afterward? What'd you feel about it? What'd you think? I don't remember after. That's bullshit. Hey, I'm not just gonna tell you what you want to hear. You ask me a question, I gotta answer it. Right, yeah, people can feel intentions very clearly in a classroom and also in a theater when they're sitting in front of the screen. And you can feel in bones and all the intentions are authentic, but I completely understand not wanting to let your anyone's life seep into their work when they have such a, uh, a platform like that. Sticking with that, um, the economic inequality of it all and the really the American landscape, which this movie sort of acts as almost like a period piece because I think people have been struggling to 
genreify, if you will, the movie. And in that way, it's like a nightmare, but it's also beautiful. So it can be both. And these, uh, this movie is like almost illustrating all the unfulfilled promises of the 80s, like Reagan's America that were still feeling the consequences from today. And there's something so, again, beautiful, yet kind of hollow when you're seeing Marin and Lee look over the horizon, like for these two lead characters, or just looking at the landscape of the country and driving through it, because it feels as if they can go anywhere, but they know they'll never be accepted anywhere. And I feel like that is such a, you capture that so well, that I think is a message that people have been trying to send from a political community in the United States to another one for so long, that this movie does excellently. How was that process of knowing how to include enough subtextually about the period that you're in in this film that they're living in without being too over the top? Because I think the failures of the American metaphor is so seamless in this movie, but other films have struggled with like critiquing failures of capitalism where it feels like what you're talking about, which is someone's life like uh, yelling at you through a screen, whereas this feels incredibly pure. How, how difficult was that to get on paper by just showing these two characters looking over the country and, and driving through it in the landscape? Because I, you did succeed at that, but was that something that was a huge struggle in the writing process? Well, it's less of a struggle working with Luca because I know how he shoots and I know how he right. world builds through costume, through material, the material sort of culture of the of the film. And so I, I, I tend to want to try to codify that stuff um, in detail rather than in dialogue. Occasionally I might throw in a, a, a sort of a, a clip on a television somewhere. It was, mm -hmm. it was too, um, too important. I think to show a young Rudy Giuliani in this movie talking about nobility <laughs> and ethics. And it sort of it sometimes plays for a laugh, sometimes doesn't depending on mm -hmm. which, where you're seeing it. Um, but usually I try to code the stuff into the physical objects because that's ultimately how, how these things uh, express themselves. I mean, I, I had a sort of a, a pretty interesting moment in the, in the set that was the grocery store in this film, which, you know, was sort of out, outfitted with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of specific products from the eighties and just walking into it, it was like a time capsule or like a time bomb, even I, just seeing how the packaging back then reflected a vibe that is not yeah, a modern yeah. vibe and that was quite cold i had forgotten how cold it was a coldly sexual vibe uh that i just forgot was on almost every package except maybe for cereal <laughs> you know what i mean and it was mm -hmm. weird it reminded me that um you know i think a lot of depictions of the 80s in in sort of culture now i think of like it or stranger things or horror movies or horror stories that have tried to evoke the 80s they tend to and this isn't a criticism it's just an mm -hmm. observation that they tend to to focus their attention mostly on the pop elements of the 80s right and you know when i was writing this film i was i, I was reminding myself why that pop element existed in the 80s it was in it was in response to the sort of the complete chaos and lack of stability of the 70s culturally um and it was a weird sort of um almost like a, a, a pull of nostalgia for the 60s or even the 50s, you know what I mean? To sort of right. get out of the messy conversations of the 70s. And to me, that completely misses the point of the 80s, of setting anything in the 80s, to sort of stay with the pop screen that the 80s built for itself and not look behind it would, would be missing the opportunity, I thought. So I didn't right. spend a lot of time on the pop elements of the 80s. 
No, that's appreciated, I think, because you're right. There have been, I think it's probably too harsh of a word, but I can't think of anything better right now. But you've seen a lot of kind of romanticized depictions of that time period. And that has been unfortunate, especially because of, you know, what the country went through in 2016 to 2020 that did resemble a lot of what we see in 80s American politics. So a character I wanted to ask you about that I don't think has been probably talked about enough during while this movie's come out, because it's mainly been like the... Lee and Marin show because of, probably because of the performances they're incredible but Soli is a really interesting character because he is isolated he's lonely he's disenfranchised he kind of represents when something is taken away like your opportunity to connect with others what that will do to somebody and how that can create chaos what were you hoping to accomplish with that character I, I, I forget how he was written in the book but because there's something so tragic about how he's written in this movie. There's almost something so sad about the way he is inevitably killed at the end of the movie. I thought I was the only one. Are there lots of us? Not lots, but more, more than you think. You've met a few, sure, that you know of. You never had anyone take an interest in you? A double, 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 double take. <laughs> just always thought. You just thought some people are creepy. It's better if we all steer clear of one another. We're dangerous to non-eaters, but we can hurt one another just as bad. I hope you're hearing me on this. I'm so happy for this question because to me, Sully is the key to the movie. And I think Mark Rylance recognized that when he read the script and in our first conversations about it, it was so clear that he understood what what his real function in the film was. It wasn't to be the baddie, you know what I mean? It wasn't to mm-hmm. be the antagonist, although he functions in that way in some senses. It was almost like he's the ghost of Christmas future in the film. He is a vision of what Marin or Lee could become if they... Mm-hmm live out the next four decades of their lives without meaningful contact with other people, without meaningful introspection. I mean, this is a man who has gone so long without intimacy, affection, um, you know, real emotional vulnerability in his life. He doesn't, when it presents itself in the form of this sort of curious and innocent young woman, he doesn't even know what it, what it is or what it means anymore. Does he Mm. want to be her her protector? Does he want to be her father? Does he want to be her lover? Does he want to be her destroyer? He's feeling all of these things in this completely disorganized way. And I find that, um, you know, he's probably, you know, almost past the point of our empathy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because he is, there is so much pathos to his character that all that's left for us, almost all that's left for us to do with him is pity him in in the classical sense of that word. But I think what he represents and you can see in him, and, and specifically in Mark's performance, somebody that still wants to connect. It's just been so many years without the ability or the opportunity to do it. He doesn't know how. I just find that so, I just find it so sad. Yeah. And I think uh, you can, now, now I'm going to watch it again and think about the kind of the parallel between Lee and Marin and, and Soli, because I think it w- I think I thought of it then but now talking to you that's going to be a a helpful insight i think for listeners too what i love about the ending of bones and all and i think i'll probably be my final question because i'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because the the difference i i know about the the novel versus the film is that the novel is more focused on cannibalism representing veganism is that correct 
in the book. Uh, yeah, I think that was that was Camille's intention. Yeah, right. And uh, the movie does something interesting where I think it still pays an homage to the, to the original story, where it seems like Marin is so unwilling, or she seems very hesitant to act on cannibalism, and where you get like Lee, and he is hesitant, but he he has become isolated and cynical and solely is in also a bad place. And Marin wants to desperately connect with others, but there are moments where I think she believes or is convinced that she doesn't have to eat others to survive. Am I wrong in assuming, assuming that? Because I think the end of this movie can be read a few different ways, but I like to read about it. Maybe it's, I'm too hopeful, but I like to read the story as if that she goes on and is going to be okay. And she's learned experiences from, from Lee and from, and from Soli too. And maybe she doesn't have to live a life uh, like that. Yes, I, I, I'll tell you, there was a scene in the script that was a kind of a coda after the ending you see in the film that ultimately Luke and I decided we didn't need, partly because Taylor's performance was so strong. I mean, we didn't decide Incredible. to lose the ending until we were already in Nebraska, which was two thirds of the way through the film. And the, the ending of the script originally was just a, it was, <laughs> you'll laugh. Uh, but honestly, what it was, was you cut from the last scene with, with Marin and Lee, you fade to black, and then some indeterminate period of time passes, and you're suddenly on a school bus with children and two teachers, and they are on a field trip, and they are going to a, a place where they're going to meet a ferry, and a ferry is going to take them across some body of water to an island where they're going to spend the day. And so they're all in the rain under the shelter, two teachers and all their students, and one of the students notices Marin sitting by the side of the lake in the rain. And they call down to her to see if she wants to come and get out of the rain and she doesn't answer them. And we realize in the audience, she's probably just eaten and is in that kind of afterglow of, of eating, but it's unclear, it was completely ambiguous. And the teacher goes down to talk to her. And by the time he gets down to the place where she was, she's gone. And so the point of that was to show that she does, she does have a life beyond the film. Um, but I think what we decided was in Taylor's performance, it was already apparent that she was learning everything she would need to know to be fine. Uh, might mm -hmm. Not fine is too strong a word, but that she could exist and probably not become Sully, but become a, a kind of character we hadn't met yet. Not Jake, not Brad, not Sully, not Lee, but somebody who had more autonomy, more control. Um, and, you know, so it was easy to let go of that scene after seeing, you know, four weeks of Taylor's performance. Um, but yeah, the point was always to make it make the, the ending feel like it was the end of a very important summer in her life, but it wasn't the last <laughs> summer of her life that right. she learned a lot from, actually from the three men in the film that make her a meal, her father, Sully and Lee, and each of them representing a different kind of attitude about how one can connect. I smelt you too. I didn't know I could do that. I'm a... Going to Minnesota, I got dumped here by a ride. I just stole dinner. It was all I could think to do. You're not local either, I guess. Why does that matter? That was nice what you did for that mom in there. I'm 18, if you're wondering. I was gonna guess younger. Thanks. I don't usually talk to anyone after. I don't actually meet many others. I'm sort of glad not to. Yeah, I get it. I'm just saying, I'm not an asshole. Should probably go anyway up close so you can see blood. We're fine. 
No. I really don't think I am. Yes, okay, that makes a lot more sense. I was really hoping for the... I didn't want the Romeo and Juliet ending, so I was glad that didn't happen. I really wanted one of them <laughs> to be okay. It is nice to see that kind <laughs> yeah, of positive yeah. ending yeah. a resolution at the end. Yeah. Um, great, okay, so this has been a great conversation, Dave. So we end every talk with a fun recommendation for the listeners by asking you, a creator, what is a film or show that you believe deserves extra credit? Because our podcast, Extra Credits, oh. we try and spread awareness of why meaningful films or shows deserve extra credit, like Bones and All. And we've had a lot of directors and writers come on this year and give different examples. So I'll give you a few so you can think about it. So Helena Rain came on from Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. She recommended The Piano Teacher. Excellent film. Zach Kreger from Barbarian talked about St. Maud and Audition. And uh, Seth Reese from The Menu just talked about Rocky. And we just had Usland on talking about uh, the cuckoo's nest. So we, we have a lot of great films um, that have been recommended, but it could be something that is popular. Or it could be something that you keep in your back pocket. Actually, in the spirit of this conversation, what I want to say is for people who haven't, younger people who haven't yet seen Silence of the Lambs, mm -hmm. um, it's, I mean, yes, that won a ton of awards and you know, billions of people have seen it, but Every once in a while, I mention it to somebody who's under 30 and they haven't seen it before. Uh, and I would give a little extra credit to that film because to me, that film is the sort of um, the prototype for a lot of um, what I'm trying to do in my career, which is take these opportunities to speak through the language of genre and actually tell some pretty emphatically moral stories. And I don't, I don't mean moral in a way that's meant to put anyone down. I don't mean a judgmental kind of morality, but that that film, if you can decode it, and it doesn't take very much um, kind of energy or attention to decode it, you just have to be in the right mind when you see it. It is it is a a a brilliant um, way to take a female character who would be invisible in most other stories that are about that subject matter, and make it so that she is the only person in that entire the world of that film who can actually rise to the challenge and not because the plot forces her to be able to do it. It's because of who she is, her values, her upbringing, her class, her gender, all of those things contribute to her being actually having the power to, to, to emerge at the end of that film. Um, I'll say somewhat victorious. Yeah. Uh, and I just think I, I remember watching that and, and, and when Ted Talley was given the Academy Award for adapted screenplay, he thanked, uh, the author of the book uh, for writing a deeply moral book and I remember I didn't know what he meant because I had seen the film and it seemed like a fun <laughs> scary exciting genre movie but when I went back and watched it I was like wow there is a whole level of, on which this film is built that is only about humanity and and and, and uh, you know sort of empathy like it's just an amazing film so I would give a little extra credit to a film that maybe people are already forgetting but shouldn't no, that's great. That's incredible recommendation. Um, that's funny because I just rewatched some of your work recently. I watched this rewatched Suspiria, and that's one of the movies I thought about was uh, Silence of the Lambs. So that's funny because the way you write the woman characters in that movie is that their their pasts are an asset to them, and the owning that becomes yeah. a part of their identity and their life. And that reminds me of uh of jodie foster's character so yeah that's a great recommendation i think people will love that now i want to rewatch the movie i might watch it tonight look at that 
do um, it. Watch it. It's wonderful. Yeah. I've taught it. <laughs> no, there you go. I have. It's been in in many of my syllabuses over the years. <laughs> well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on. Best of luck over the next few months. This is one of my favorite films of 2022. And I'm hoping you and the entire team uh, have a great reception over the next few months because it's just, it's been an incredible movie to watch a few times in theaters with people. And I'm hoping more and more people keep going to see it and our listeners will probably want to rewatch it again after this conversation. So thank you for coming on. Thanks, Trey. I appreciate this so much. It's it's a pleasure to talk to you in particular. And I wish Kelsey could have been here and, uh, you know, say hi to your students for me. (laughs) Will do.